Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. So today, we are blessed. We are blessed with an amazing guest who is coming to us from far off. I think it's really the opposite corner of the country. She is currently a receiver extraordinaire from the state of Washington. And we're going to talk about the receivership statutes and all that in Washington. But Kelly Crocker has had an illustrious career. She started out as a lawyer like us, but felt like she could really make a significant impact and a significant difference by transitioning from practicing law in the insolvency world to actually being a receiver, rolling up her sleeves, getting in on the ground and helping the small to medium-sized businesses that she has helped and continues to help today. We've had the good fortune to work with Shelly. And when I say she is smart, that is an understatement. She is wildly brilliant, gets in, understands really everything about the business, about the people, about the relationships, about everything, so that she can formulate the right path forward for those businesses and for the people and takes what might be deemed a crisis and a problem and converts that into a positive for the people that may be involved in the business, employees or the owners, but also the creditors as well. And to work with Shelly, you better know what you're doing (laughs) because she knows what she's doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, (laughs) you better turn around and go home because man, she's awesome. So with that, let's welcome Shelly Crocker. Thank you, Brad. I'm glowing over here. Thank you for that. Quite an intro. You actually, you should record that for your website or effusive in praise really for Shelly Crocker. And so we're so happy to have you here. Thank you for for doing it. It took us some time to make it happen. And so we're thankful that we had the opportunity to do that. And boy, do we have a bunch of things we'd love to talk to you about. Let's go. Let's do it. So first and foremost, you made the transition, as I mentioned, from attorney to receiver. Why? What led to that? Why? So. I think probably the best way to start the story is why I became a bankruptcy lawyer in the first place. That was a long time ago. It was more than 30 years ago. I was still in law school when my path took me to, I went to law school in Minnesota, University of Minnesota, and I, my second year summer, that important moment in all of our careers, right? I went to work for a pretty good sized law firm in Minneapolis called Fredrickson and Byron, still is there still is led by the same leader of the insolvency practice, Jim Bailey, who I know Jeff knows from uh, the ABA work. And I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. I I thought I wanted to be a constitutional lawyer, right? Didn't we all when we went to law school? And I had a friend of mine who was a year ahead of me who had worked there the year before. And he called me up and he said, Shelly, tell me you want to work in the bankruptcy department. I'm like, Bill, why would I do that? (laughs) And he explained to me, you know, it's a great combination of the federal practice. It's got a great combination of business and litigation. And it attracts the kind of people that somebody like me would want to work with. Real mavericks, he called them. But And this firm had exactly one of those who led that. I mean, Jim Bailey has been there for a long time, but there was this guy named Bill Camp 
who was your typical debtor side, debtors, lawyer, bankruptcy lawyer. And he taught me a lot about respecting the company and the people and the economic model and figuring out the business solution that was going to work for that particular circumstance. And then I had the good fortune to go to another big firm in Seattle after my clerkship. And again, the debtor's lawyer mentality of salvaging what could be salvaged out of whatever seeds there were of the business model and really fighting for that rebirth of a company. And we did some creditor work there too. It was my career started at Perkins Coie and but largely we had a debtor's practice. And when I started my own firm after that, it was a boutique debtor's practice. And we had that for 16 years and got to work on a lot of great cases. But over that time, it was, as you guys well know, Chapter 11 was becoming more and more expensive. Doing true reorganizations was becoming more and more rare. And so much more, it was 363 sales and just kind of getting in there and quickly cleaning off the assets and dumping them out, right? And it just wasn't as much fun anymore, right? <laughs> the opportunity to get to know a business, they, clients couldn't afford it, right? And I was spending more and more of my time sort of running a law firm and less and less of my time doing the best parts of a reorganization practice, which is getting to work with the businesses that are actually doing real things. And so I actually had a little interlude in between when I left my firm. I ran for office and lost, thank goodness, for a state legislature role. And then was really a little bit, I knew I didn't want to go back to practicing law full time and was really trying to figure out, well, what's my path forward? And I had at that time a professional group I was involved with called the Women Presidents Organization. And my WPO sisters basically helped me see that if I made myself available, let people know that I was looking for a new role, that it would come to me. And they were so right. It did. It just came to me. People, when they heard that I was available to do the consulting work that I do now, it's always just shown up when I needed it to. And some of that's been in the form of being appointed the receiver. That is my favorite role. But as I've also done a fair amount of consulting, a lot of it with either businesses in trouble who are kind of trying to get a feel for what the landscape is, or sometimes for people buying assets out of liquidation. And then also I do strategic planning with nonprofits, which is great. I get bored real easily. So having a chance to do a lot of different things. The other reason that it's been so wonderful to have made this change is that I really only work on one or two or three things at a time. And I am available to go all in. And so when I get that first call, which again, I imagine a lot of people listening to this know the rhythm of these things, right? Like we in the insolvency world don't get called until it's too late, right? Like, and usually the clock is ticking. It's not a lot of run up time a lot of times, but often I'm able to say yes. I did some receivership where I was appointed the receiver when I was still practicing law. But when you're juggling a caseload of 30 cases of your own and a firm handling 100 cases at a time, and, you know, I was managing partner, so everyone's caseload was my caseload, right? It's hard to drop everything and be there for those first few crucial months of a business in trouble. Now I can do that. And that's what I do. When the phone rings, I go. It's an amazing trajectory. And I know you do, you know, we talked 
Brett touched on the receivership and you mentioned the the turnaround consulting, which before we jump too far into the receiverships, I think that's a really fascinating topic. But the transition from being an insolvency lawyer to an insolvency consultant, I think is such a an important one, but also kind of subtle. And I think that a lot of non-insolvency lawyers out there may not understand that difference. And for a business that's struggling, they hire sometimes they'll go to the consultant, sometimes they'll go to the lawyer, oftentimes the bank refers them mm-hmm. to a consultant. But can you talk a little bit about that difference from yeah. being a restructuring yeah. attorney to being a restructuring consultant? For me, the transition has been maybe more continual than what you're suggesting. But from the outside looking in, I do think there's a very big difference. One thing I remember the first time I went back to court as a witness for in a chapter 11 setting, and I was so struck by how little the lawyer and more importantly, the judge actually understood what was happening. I mean, being on the ground and really knowing what's going on and then just watching the judge's eyes glaze over when she had gotten the answers she was looking for to make her decision. And I was like, oh, you don't understand. I mean, I was not doing that in court because, I mean, one thing is as I have great respect for the process, right, and for the law, that doesn't leave you. And so I think that's something that differentiates me from other consultants is that I do know I have that knowledge, that working knowledge of how the law is going to help us or hurt us. And I'm very careful to never go anywhere in my (laughs) strategies that's going to take me outside of my full comfort zone as a lawyer. But I'm very clear that I do not practice law anymore. I don't care about practice insurance. (laughs) I don't yeah. care about, I do keep yeah. up on my CLEs, yeah. but I don't give legal advice. We hire lawyers if we need them. I always hire a lawyer when I'm a receiver. But the difference really is about the intimacy with the actual operations. And operations really are people and numbers, right? Where's the money? Where is the cash? I always want to know where the money is every day. Right. Like, and when you're the lawyer on a case, you don't know. Right. And I want to know the people. I want to know who's running what. And that means meeting the whole company. Usually in my cases, that's what I do. Sometimes that hasn't always been possible. But when you're the lawyer, you're really relying on the client and whoever that is representing the client to tell you and show you the facts. And then your job is to distill those facts in a way that and use the law to help accomplish the client's goal. When I'm the receiver, I'm really having to understand the truth, right? What's the truth of the matter? And to actually make things work, right? And then wherever the law comes in is important too. But to me, the satisfaction in my job now comes from the output. What's the output? How many people are working? How many jobs? What are they able to accomplish for themselves and their families with their incomes? And then what's the product? What comes out the other end? And being, it just feels like contributing in a way that's really important to me. I always found that like you, I mean, to me, bankruptcy or insolvency, whether it's a receivership, allows you to sort of focus on the business and learn, get involved in different Mm -hmm. 
But it's also different areas of the law that all come together. Right. That's right. right? And like yeah. either the receivership statute or the bankruptcy code sort of guides you, but you're dictated in some measure by whether it be state law or other federal law or the business itself and the industry that you just happen to kind of find yourself in. That's right. And yeah. I think that you have the ability now, as you said, as sort of the operator to come in to kind of help get your feet on the ground where a lawyer, just hard for a lawyer to do that. Right. But the thing that is in common, I think, is that I always tell people I'm a generalist. And when I was practicing insolvency law, people don't realize that it really, insolvency lawyers are generalists for the most part, right? You can't specialize. You have to know contracts. You have to know property law. You have to know tort law. You have to know about regulations. You have to know how to negotiate and draft contracts. And you have to know how to stand up in court and and argue a motion. And Having that breadth, it's a dying art, right? And it's very true in receivership as well. Now, certainly some receivers do specialize um, and you tend to see it in the property management world quite a lot. And that's great, but that's not my business model, right? My special sauce is that I think being a generalist for me is an advantage. It keeps me curious. It keeps me learning. It keeps me asking questions. And so I tend to not take things for granted because I don't know. I don't know the answer till I get there, right? And so it allows me to offer sort of a, a much broader array of possibilities from the outset of a receivership case. As you describe that difference between the lawyer, and the judge, and you as the turnaround consultant, I'm reminded of a quote that one of our local judges always used to say that a chapter 11 is very much like a swan on a lake. On the top, it's very calm and serene and graceful and beautiful. But underneath, it's quite violent and chaotic with water turning around. And you're kind of underneath the water you know, in the consulting world rather than just the lawyer that's right. in court. And that's the beauty is that you actually roll up your sleeves and get in there and, and assist in the operational decisions about a business. Whereas the lawyers are really focused on the reorganization, the top side. What are the numbers that are presented? You want to know how the numbers got onto that spreadsheet. I just want to see the spreadsheet as the lawyer. So how do you get, let's just for the benefit of the non-insolvency folks out there, how do you become appointed as either a receiver or a turnaround consultant for a business typically? You mean how do I specifically? I don't mean how do you become a receiver, I think, because you, know, you have to do it. You have to have experience. There's so many components to being a receiver, but how do you get an actual appointment? Most of my work comes from other lawyers. I mean, honestly, I just, I've been in this business a long time. I know people in town. When I started, I knew everybody, right? I'd been practicing for 25 years, right? It's definitely, now I've been doing this since 2013. I don't know everybody anymore, <laughs> but usually my cases come from lawyers who know me and their clients or either creditor side or debtor side. I would say I've probably done maybe even a little more than half now have been what we call ABCs, assignments for the benefit of creditors. And under Washington law, an ABC is automatically treated as a general receivership. And so that was something that our Washington law incorporated quite a while ago, 2008, this might be a good place to talk a little bit about how in Washington, we were 
very much on the forefront of what is now happening around the country where receivership is really gaining ground in terms of one of the possibilities for debtors or their creditors to avail themselves of, whereas bankruptcy was far and away the most used in court alternative for a long time. Receivership has gained a lot of ground as bankruptcies become more expensive. After the 2005 BAPSIPA made some changes that made it a little bit more difficult also for debtors particularly. Now, I don't know how this new Chapter 5 thing is going to affect receivership. I think it will ultimately have a pretty dramatic effect, but it's too soon to say. That's the new small business provisions. But in Washington, so I started doing receiverships a long time ago when I, I was still at Perkins Coie, my first receivership case. And it was only the second, I think, large receivership in Washington since the 1978 bankruptcy amendments. So maybe this is a little too geeky, but in 1978, there was a very large change made from the Bankruptcy Act to the original code. And that really opened the door to Chapter 11 becoming the preferred form of reorganization. And receivership in Washington pretty much died out. And then just prior to me coming on the scene, there was a major receivership done by some friends of mine in Washington. It was a a dairy, a big dairy case. And there emerged a small, very small, there was like four people that understood receivership work. And I, you know, I was a young associate. I got involved in one of these and became friendly with the other people doing it. Honestly, four of us, maybe five. It was really fun because we got to use the old books. This was the thing that most attracted me was I got to cite laws from the territorial law book. Like Washington Reporter We have Washington reporters that go back. You guys don't have this in Florida, is my guess. Washington Territory. So you get to cite Washington Territory in your brief. Isn't that cool? So we were all on common law and receivership for a while. And in 2008, with the work of this small group of people, and it was many years coming, I won't bore you with all those details, but we passed a statute in this state that's quite a comprehensive receivership statute. It tracks the bankruptcy code in many, many ways, with the major exception being that there's no discharge available because that would, bankruptcy law would preempt the ability to give a discharge was the decision. But it does include a sales free and clear of liens provision, which has been very, very useful in our state. It also standardized a lot of the practice in ways that just had not been possible before. And it came right at a time when, for a number of reasons, were very fortuitous, right? The BAPSIPA was really disfavoring use of Chapter 11. And 2008, we all know what happened in 2008, right? So the real estate really was collapsing and a lot of people came into the field. And that's been good for our overall, I think, here in Washington, we have a very robust receivership statute. And one of the things it did is it incorporated this ABC right into the receivership statute. And again, standardizing the practice in a very helpful way. So I know for a lot of states, a lot of lawyers that may be listening, the term receiver you think of in the context of litigation, right? That there's this litigation that's been commenced and a motion's been filed and it's very adversarial to get a receiver appointed. Can you explain a little bit in Washington state, and I know a lot of your appointments, that's not how they start. 
Right. So there's some 27 or 37 enumerated ways you can get a receiver appointed in Washington. So there are still some that are partnership disputes. That's usually when those big litigation or a receiver that's appointed in aid of execution of a judgment also happens frequently. But these ABCs have become a very common way of receivership taking place where, uh, and you can also get an appointment of a receiver as a creditor, as a particularly secured creditor on petition for appointment of receiver. You no longer have to commence another action where receivership is just one possible remedy or outcome. And so probably now the vast majority of receivership cases are commenced by a petition to appoint a receiver, very similar to a bankruptcy proceeding commencement by a petition. And in an ABC, again, a lot of my cases, the receiver is given the assets. I'm essentially the owner under the supervision and auspices of the court, but that supervision tends to be much less than bankruptcy court. Like state courts just don't have time to to mess around. We do go on motion for various things. There's many things listed again in the statute that require court approval, but the court just is not a specialist court, doesn't have the time. Now, sometimes there's still often there are cases that are commenced by secured creditors. And again, a lot of these are the real estate cases, but sometimes even in operating cases where the secured creditor isn't getting paid or sees things going badly and believes that there's waste occurring and then has the ability to get a receiver appointed for that reason. But a lot of times under Washington law, it's quite clear that the receiver is a fiduciary to all the creditors in that case and is required to conduct the receivership the same as if it's an ABC. No real difference. There's a fair number of cases that are brought by a regulatory authority by the state of Washington. I've done a couple of those for the Department of Financial Institutions over escrow companies, for instance, where there's some waste occurring in a regulatory body. There's a whole federal receivership that operates with the SEC can appoint a receiver that also is in that regulatory. So there's a lot of different ways that a receiver can be appointed. I've only been involved in a a handful of cases where there was contentious litigation going on. And it's it's not fun. I avoid litigation, if at all possible. But again, the receiver's role is to be neutral, to be operating on behalf of the entity and the creditors in a fiduciary capacity, right? It sounds like, Shelley, the distinction you're drawing is, and maybe this is a Washington versus the rest of the country, distinction is voluntary versus involuntary. When a creditor moves to appoint a receiver, that's involuntary. But it sounds like in Washington, a company that is struggling, that may have experience in whatever that business is, but not great experience in turnaround, crisis management, restructuring, liquidation, you name it, and wants to have somebody like you take charge of that vehicle for purposes of protecting others can invoke this receivership slash ABC remedy. That's right. And I mean, I I would say that the majority of those, the debtor, the owner, the person in charge, they're over their heads. They're ready for some help. Right. Yeah, we've talked to many businesses and, you know, I've said you might be very good at whatever it is you do, but you're probably not very good at shutting down that type of business or liquidating it or or restructuring it. One thing that we shouldn't overlook is that when a company moves for appointment of receiver of itself for an ABC, that motion, they get to name who they want 
as yeah. receiver. Whereas well, when you file for chapter seven, you're going to get a trustee in there by the bankruptcy code. You don't have a say over that. And so that can tilt people in favor of receivership sometimes. Now, it's not a sure thing. The court can do what it wants, but it's rare that the court doesn't appoint the person who's being requested. I love the ABC to receiver component. I think that's, a, like you said, that's a great way to, for a company to put itself into this process in order to hopefully help itself and restructure and help its creditors. I think that's, given the expense associated with Chapter 11s and and everything going on, I mean, I, I think that that's, there's going to be more of them than maybe chapter 11s because it's just no, we talked about it, it's very little restructuring in chapter 11s anymore. It's liquidations and litigation and things like that. It's become quite, as Shelly said, as you said before, costly. And I think the new SBRA, the subchapter five component that you mentioned before has become a tool to reduce the expenses. And we've had some success with it, but it's still not a replacement for... We in Florida have a pretty robust ABC statute. It doesn't incorporate the receiver like yours does, but it's an alternative for a business that probably needs to liquidate or can't continue in its current format, but doesn't have the expertise to do that. Brett touched on this in your introduction that part of why you're so successful as receivership is how much you take ownership. And I know legally you are the owner because the assets were assigned to you, but I've heard you talk about your cases. We've worked on a lot of work with you over the years. You always use the pronoun we. When you're talking about the business, we always hear you say, we did this, we did that, not the business did this or they did that. And I think that's a tribute to you and the way you approach these cases. I mean, I like being part of something, right? And I feel that way. I take these on. And I think a big part of my role is opening space for what can come next. And you can only do that from the inside, right? You got to be a we, right? Like, for me, that's the only way I can make it work. Well, you care. You actually care about the outcome and you care about the people that you're working with and working for. And so that is tremendous. And that's why you've been so successful in getting in there and rolling your sleeves up. I did not know that you ran for office. For you didn't. Are we going to see a Shelley 2022? No, no. Oh, no. So I ran in the 2012 election. Yes. For Washington State Legislature. I am so glad I didn't win. I'm really <laughs> glad I did it. I'm really yeah. glad I did it. It was very interesting. Really important thing I learned that can help everybody, I think, is to understand that the talent for campaigning is not the same group of qualities as you want from somebody who's going to actually govern. You do not want the people running this country who are good at campaigning. It's not the same thing, right? I was terrible at campaigning. The year that I lost, that was the year that really things started going badly. And our state legislature has been very divided and very ugly in some of the same ways as we see on a national scale. And I just it is not something I want to be part of. What led you to want to run at that time? Like, what was the, was there an issue or was there, you know? There really was actually. And it's kind of related to why I left the practice of law. Also, I, for a number of years, always, my whole life, actually, I've been involved in volunteer work. My parents were very good role models for me. It's a very important part of what I do and who I am. And over the years, starting in about 
2007-2008, I got really involved in working on the homelessness issues that are so problematic here in, in Seattle. Seattle, as you know, all along the West Coast, homelessness is a huge issue. And many years ago, there was a very exciting campaign to end homelessness. Right about in the middle of that, I got involved because I was really taken by this idea of ending homelessness once and for all. And, you know, you can see how it's related to my personality, right? Like I love problem solving. I just do. It's fun. So I worked through a faith community on homelessness issues and kind of migrated to a more larger civic organization. I was on the board of an organization called Building Changes working on these issues. Now I'm on the board of an affordable housing. I feel like there's a progression there, right? Like agency called Bellwether Housing. But back then, a fair amount of what I did was advocacy and going down to the state legislature and talking about what we needed. And really government is what we need to solve a problem as big as homelessness. You can't do it by philanthropy. Philanthropy can only get around the edges. And the other thing is you need political will. You need a, the people, us, our government to say, this is important. It matters. And honestly, I believe that we live in the wealthiest country in the world. It was sort of the opposite of my bankruptcy life, right? We live in the wealthiest country in the world. There's no reason that any one individual human in our country should ever go hungry or should have to sleep outside. It's obscene. And so I met legislators down there that they were great. It was really inspiring to go see what We have a part-time legislature here. We have a citizen legislature where people have other jobs and they were devoted to working on these big problems. And I saw that that could be something I could get behind and be a part of. Like I said, that very year, 2013, our legislature ended up being divided close to 50-50 and there was a very small two or three people that decided they were going to use that to their advantage and it just lots of deadlock ensued and it was, and I'm glad I'm not there, but I do believe in the power of government to solve problems. And I do believe that government can be a good thing. I'm horrified by watching what's happening on the national scale as a citizen activist and as a lawyer on both counts, right? But I'm an eternal optimist. So I think we, it's still our government and we can still turn it around. I left that campaign understanding. I learned so much. I'm so glad I did it. What I've been involved in since, in addition to Bellwether, is I've done a lot of voter awareness, voter rights work. I've been involved with an organization called Common Power. We help our state consistently votes pretty uniformly, although we do have a very divided red and blue state, which is a healthy thing in our case, I think, largely, often, sometimes. But campaigning for the Senate in particular. I've been to Nevada, I've been to Arizona, I've done a lot of work on those races. And also in helping people, young people in my life, for instance, understand the importance of voting. Just voting. I don't care how you vote. Vote for whoever you want. Yeah, you gotta vote. But you gotta vote. And it's gotta be clean. And it's gotta be for everyone. The way this thing is progressing right now in voter rights world of thinking that we should be taking the vote away from some people, it's insane. Yeah. Your optimism and your passion. And I think that's, again, another reason why you're so good at what you do. And I think a lot of people look at on its face, the insolvency world, they view bankruptcy as this negative. It's the end. It's failure. And I think you 
are a great example of how insolvency doesn't have to be the end. And that's why you're so successful because you don't approach a lot of ABCs and receiverships are liquidations, but not yours. Not always. The fresh start that bankruptcy. That's right. And that's what we believe. Honestly, I've said this since the beginning of my career, and I honestly believe it. This country, the country we live in was founded on, in one small part, this belief that everyone deserves a fresh start, right? Bankruptcy was enshrined in our constitution from the very beginning. And a lot of the people who came over here from Europe did so to escape debtor's prison, right? Like, I mean, a bunch of scofflaws, right? We know that. But this idea that everyone... Every single person deserves a chance, a second chance. That we believe in second chances. That it really is in the DNA of our country, and that's a great thing to be a part of. Yeah, and you. Every time you save a business, you're saving jobs, landlords, vendors, suppliers, utilities. I mean, the rippling effect of a business failure can be so tragic. But thank you for doing the work that you do, and so well. And back at you. You guys do too. I think it's another great part is being part of a community, the insolvency community that we do work well together, right? Yeah, we do well and we try to do some good. Yeah, exactly. This is awesome. Thank you. I always enjoy talking to you, but I've learned a bunch of new things. (laughs) Always learn when I talk to Shelly. This was great. Thank Thanks. You. I appreciate you having me. It's fun. It's fun. And if you, um, you're listening to this, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review. Share the episode in the podcast with your friends. Follow us on Apple or iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Fast Amron.